Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to the Last Line Soccer Podcast, presented to you by Prime Focus Goalkeeping and the Beautiful Game Network. We want to take some time real quick to thank our sponsors for everything they do for us. Prime Focus Goalkeeping is a brand dedicated to bringing goalkeepers of all ages, top quality gloves and apparel, as well as educational goalkeeping content via our social media pages at Prime Focus GK and YouTube channel, the Prime Focus Goalkeeping channel, as well as plenty of interviews on our blog, which you can check out on our website at www.primefocusgoalkeeping.com. We also need to thank the beautiful game network, Roughneck Scars, and Golden Gold Press for giving us a platform to reach more soccer fans and talk with more great soccer minds. Check out the website, www.bgn.fm, for more great podcasts and written content. And without further ado, let's get into our next episode. All right, welcome to the latest episode of the Last Line Soccer Podcast. I'm really excited uh, for you guys to meet our guest today, uh, current Davidson Wildcat and Charlotte Soccer Academy goalkeeper coach Aaron Stanton. How are you doing today? Uh, doing well, thank you. Doing well yourself? Appreciate you coming on today. I'm really excited to talk to you, get to know you a little bit more. And uh, here, I, I know you've got a lot to share with, uh, with the listeners. So, um, yeah, thank you for having me. Excited. Yeah, so, Let's, uh, let's, I want to get started. I want them to get to know you a little bit. So let's, let's start back, back in your youth, back, back in the, uh, what was it, about 10, 10 years ago you were playing? <laughs> it was. <laughs> I see a little grays growing in here. <laughs> I've got some grays coming in too. <laughs> yeah, my youth, uh, you know, kind of, kind of interesting with, with soccer. Um, a lot of my family grew up playing like baseball, you know, basketball football my mother grew up playing uh basketball soccer wasn't really something that was within uh our family dynamic uh my dad was an entrepreneur he owned and trained trained racehorses which was actually my gateway into soccer um owning racehorses being on the racetrack um a huge population was a lat was from a latin-based community so I had the experience at a young age of going out and see these guys, you know, when they get off work, knocking around a round ball. I'm like, hey, Dad, what's that? He's like, oh, something they do is called soccer. They play in the backside like every day. So I started going out there and watching. Next thing you know, on Sundays before church, I'm turning the volume off. I'm watching Univision. And it was just like I was hooked from there. Started playing recreation soccer um, and just grew, you know, from that point on where I was able probably – God, 10, 11 years old, I started actually playing with the men, like in Spanish leagues at the racetrack. You know, they would take it easy on me, but it was a great uh, opening, you know, segue for me to, 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 to start loving the sport. That's interesting that you, you brought the, the racetrack, the horses into it, because I recently read a book uh, called $40 Million Slaves, uh, and mm. they talk about, they talk a lot about how the racetrack um, and jockeys were were a big part of you know the black community back in older times, and that's not something I ever really knew about. So is that is that something that you had learned when you were younger? Uh, not so much. I mean, I knew they were part of me, but not so much really. And talk about that, you know, growing up, um, I know there's a lot of struggles in the African American community um, and Latin community when it came to horse racing um there's a lot of struggles that were involved in there like myself i was actually the first african-american racing official for the new jersey state sports exposition and authority um 
and that was kind of like set up for me when I was like, you know, 11 years old, my dad walked me in the office and said, Hey, you're going to have this job and need new people in there. And, you know, it worked out for me. So, um, yeah, <laughs> it's just, that's very yeah, interesting to learn uh, a little tidbit yeah, yeah. that you never would have known, but now, now everybody knows that's, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, yeah. so, so you went to Pfeiffer, correct? With Pfeiffer. The Pfeiffer. I was actually a transfer into Pfeiffer for my, my sophomore year. So everybody knows Pfeiffer University, little small school in Meissenheimer. Let me sure I say that correctly. Meissenheimer, <laughs> North Carolina. So how did you how did you get connected into Pfeiffer? What what brought you to Pfeiffer? Well, my with my my search and going to college, um, I really wanted to look at a, a small school for my 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 learning. You know, I felt that my parents felt going to a big university. Um, I grew first. I grew up in Monmouth County, New Jersey. Um, so all the schools there were, were big, and we had some smaller state schools. But I felt that would have got lost with my learning style in a in a bigger institution where I was the number. I couldn't put my thumb on a professor and get the things that I needed. So I was recruited by, you know, your your Riders, your Rutgers, your your St. John's, you know, all the big D1 schools in, in the Northeast. And I decided to go to um, Kane College um, in 1992, 93, they were Division Three National Champs. I went there in 93, 94 um, to play and to learn because it kind of, the, the style of soccer they had, the brand was unique for me. It was a, a lot of foreign players, kind of what I was accustomed to playing with the racetrack. It was only maybe three American players that actually started um, my freshman year. Um, I would have gotten to play right away. They're coming off a national championship. And the most important thing was, you know, the classroom size were manageable and they were smaller and more conducive to my learning style. Um, so I ended up going there for a year. Um, I got injured in preseason, which is, you know, as you'll hear through this segment, a lot of my you know, career has been injury plagued. Um, I tore some ligaments in my wrist and ended up playing the last two games of the season to get us into the NCAA tournament. And I ended up losing a year of eligibility because I ended up re-injuring myself. Um, after that fall year, I wanted a little bit more. I wasn't really happy that I lost a year of eligibility. I thought I was mismanaged. And then I went to put in my transfer papers to Rutgers University. Um, everything was accepted. My coach calls me into the office and we proceed to have a conversation about that's not the right fit for me. So I decided to stay at Kane, um, mix my papers to go to Rutgers and play there. After my spring season, I felt I made a bad decision. Um, and I really wanted to go to the Rutgers. I really wanted to be on that on that stage and in that environment. And they had unfortunately went and got a goalkeeper from here. So <laughs> you know, mixed me out of there. So I was tied to the uh, goalkeeper coach there, Tim O'Queen, who you, you just played against uh, Memphis 901. He uh, he he said he and Bob Riasso, he was an alumni of Pfeiffer, so everything kind of ties in. He said, Hey, we can't take you here, but. T.J. Kostecki was coaching at uh, New Jersey Institute of Technology, NJIT. He's going down to the small school I graduate from in North Carolina. It has what you want. It's going to be really good at soccer. They have the education that you want. You might want to give them a look. So I met T.J. and a player from England in Mawa, New Jersey, at Centenary College. Phenomenal week of training. They sent me a video. I never visited the school. 
stroked the papers, came down, and graduated in 1998 from Pfeiffer University and had a, what I call is a really good, you know, some people call it outstanding, but I thought it was a solid career at yeah, Pfeiffer. Well, that's awesome. So you mentioned, you mentioned Tim Mulqueen. Um, yep. Talk a little bit about how he helped you develop throughout your youth career. Tim O'Queen is how I have to say the kids. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. Okay, <laughs> I've he, seen that from the sidelines. <laughs> yeah, he he. There's no there's no flaw for or anything about him. He's a real as real as it gets. Um, if you're not doing something right, he's gonna stop you. He's gonna correct you. He's not gonna let you do bad technique. He's gonna make you step outside of your comfort zone, and he's gonna put you. He put me in situations that you know made me step out of my comfort zone, made me uncomfortable, so that I had to get comfortable when game time came. And it was really instrumental because he also selected certain goalkeepers. Like we would have groups of goalkeepers, but he wanted to keep the level competitive so that we were always constantly pushing each other every single session. I see that a lot with some of the kids I train today. There's, say, there was a lot more grit back then. Plus, coaches could say certain things that they can't say, you know, now, the times, the times are different, you know, so you can walk over to you, put his hand around your shoulder and be like, hey, you need to get that ball, and then give you that look and say a couple other words that I can't repeat, and then you go out there and you get the ball because you didn't want to hear it from him anymore, but you can't do that now, so we had a little bit of a, you know, different type of grit, I mean, goalkeepers are gritty now, but it was a little bit type of, you know, the tough love that, we, that he used to, uh, give to us that actually made a lot of goalkeepers really strong not only in the goal but off the field as well yeah a lot of things he taught me you know on the field on the field you know I carry over in 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 life today I still use a lot of those things today and so it's my understanding you trained with uh Tim Howard when you were younger yep we were all in the yep sorry so what what was that like I just want to you know kind of see what what level was like then it was a battle. When I first met Timmy, you know, we were already in a camp. A friend of mine introduced me to Mo Queen and got me invited into the camp. So back then it had like area select, which I guess would be, we had no DA. So if you wanted to get in the past national team, it was area select. And then it was uh, ODP was the big thing. And then regional pool. So when I got to the area select and the ODP is when I started working with Mo Queen. And then I started hearing about this kid coming up, Tim Howard, Tim Howard. So you got to imagine we're all there, you know, 14, 15 years old, and you hear about this 12, 13-year-old kid coming up that's better than all of us. And we're like, no, it's not going to happen. And he came in, let me tell you, he lived up to every all the hype. He, I mean, he was gritty. He didn't back down. And we were a lot bigger than him back then. I mean, he's a beast now, but we were a lot bigger than him, and he would give it to us. I mean, there were guys leaving training sessions with, you know, bloody noses and, and bruises and because we were going after it. I mean, he was just gritty, great hands, great feet, communicator, hard worker. He really set the standard, you know, at training sessions. You quickly noticed who the alpha was in the room, okay, even at a young age, and everybody wanted to destroy him. So because everybody wanted to either – you know, be better than him, it made all the other goalkeepers around him that much better. And we all kind of fed off of each other. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was going to be my next question. Is like, how do you think that that whole dynamic helped you to develop as a goalkeeper? Because obviously you're pushing, you see another goalkeeper who, regardless of age, may be, you know, at a different level. You know, is that something that you went into training every single day? Like, hey, I want to push to be better than, than Tim today. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. There were several times where, you know, I was in college and he was still training in high school and getting ready to go into the professional ranks. And we, I would come back and I would train with him. I'm like, I would look and I would look again. I'm like, oh, wow. Did he just really just do that? How did he do that? And then we would talk a little bit and then we would get after it and then I would try it. And then just, just watching the things that he was doing, his level, his approach was, was so like spot on it and very, what's the word? Very direct. Like he had a very direct training approach. It, was, it didn't seem like there was wasted motions. Mm-hmm. Like everything he did was with a purpose. And then I took that was like, that's what I want. And then you get paired with him. And then you go and you go back to college and maybe your your second or third string doesn't, you know, hit the same types of balls. And then you start feeling the frustration because you're so used to getting, you know, balls from him and that level. And, you know, it, it was just, it was instrumental just training all the guys that were in that goalkeeping core. I mean, I believe the guys that were there, I would say 85 and 90% played collegiately. And the ones that didn't probably chose like a study that wouldn't allow them to play on the college level. I think it's interesting because I look at uh, a lot of the goalkeepers that I work with now. I mean, I look at myself and I look at a lot of the goalkeepers, the youth goalkeepers I work with now. You have a, an interesting mix. There's some goalkeepers that want to be in that, you know, elite group and want to train with those goalkeepers who they know may be at a higher level. And then I see some goalkeepers who who may shy away from that group and mainly want to be in a, in a, a lesser level group so they can be, you know, the alpha in that group. And so I try to explain to those goalkeepers, like you're kind of holding yourself back in terms of development because you're not pushing yourself to the level that you know you can be at or that you're capable of being at. You're simply just trying to be better than someone who may not be quite at your level. And I, and I think in terms of long-term development, I think that's a, a massive hindrance. So I try to I try to relay that to as many goalkeepers as possible. Is always pushing yourself to to train at the highest level with the highest level around you, um, and not just surrounding yourself with goalkeepers who make you feel better. I, that is so spot on, Brandon. Is one hundred percent true. And I do I say the same thing to my goalkeepers exactly. Train with kids who are better than you. Yeah. You know, and it's to the point now where, and I'll be 45 in two weeks. And sometimes you, when you're training some kids and they, they question what you're, what you're doing, or you ask them to get a ball and you're like, Hey, you can get that. They're like, no, I can't. And then you say, okay, hit that ball. And then you go and get it. And they're like, Oh my God, you can get up. You can hold the ball. I was like, so can you. Now it's time for you to step your level up. I'm 45. You're 13. You can do it. I'm 40, you know, 14 years old. You can do it. And, you know, sometimes I can't put them in that environment where they have a better goalkeeper to see. So we ha- I have to be that and actually get down and get gritty and dirty and sweaty. My wife's like, did you play today? I swear I didn't play. <laughs> <laughs> get in trouble. And, you know, I was just demonstrating. I was a demo dog today, and, you know, and demonstrating and showing them this is the level you can do it and you can do it sometimes it's, it's, it's mind over matter and a lot of kids want the the easy way out they want it but they don't want to work for exactly. it exactly exactly i think that's that's the key to it it's like a lot of them i see a lot of kids like we I, 
I'm big on distribution with your feet. Like I work with all my goalkeepers every single session. We're always doing something with our feet. And I have a lot of goalkeepers who tend to shy away from that weak foot because they're not good at it. And so they get, they physically get upset with me because I force them to play with that, that weak foot. We'll, we'll be doing passing and I'm playing every single ball to that weak foot. And a lot of them are trying to dance around the ball to get to their strong foot. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty direct in my coaching as well. I'll tell you if you're doing something something wrong and I'll tell you if you're doing something right like I'm always going to be your biggest fan and I'm always going to be the one who t- who's who's critical of you as well because I think I feel like honesty is the only way that you can continue to develop but but I feel like if there's so many kids that shy away from that stuff because they they do it one or two times and they're like oh, I'm not good at it so let's go back to the right foot because that makes me feel better but that's just that's one that's that's creating a ceiling for yourself and that's not where that's not where the true growth comes from right you hear it all the time like growth comes in the uncomfortable situations and it, trust me it was I haven't I'm I'm still not great with my left foot but it was great it was very uncomfortable for for a while um, for me to even get a ball on my left foot, but I just continue to work at it, work at it, force myself to strike balls, force myself to do that little extra bit after training. And then that's how I've gotten to be more comfortable. So I try to relay that to my goalkeepers as much as possible. It's like, you feel uncomfortable with it right now, but imagine where you'll be in a year if you continue at it, if you continue to work at it. And so that's that's just a little bit of what what some of the, I try to teach to some of my goalkeepers. Yeah, you have to, I mean, the, I always start, my sessions out with footwork because it's, it's, it's such a part of the game now. Like when I was playing, we had the, the pass back rule. So your defender can pass the ball back, you know, you can pick it up, <laughs> you know, in high school and growing up, you got the college, you couldn't do it, but you can pick the ball up. My college coach, first thing he said to me, and I'll never forget this. You're not a goalkeeper. Walked in. He goes, you're not a goalkeeper. I go, uh, well, you recruited me to be a goalkeeper. He goes, you're a sweeper keeper. I go, okay, well, I've never heard that term before. What does that mean? My height, when I played high school, when I did play high school, it was always get the ball, punt the ball. So I punt the ball really far. Get the ball, punt the ball to a fast kid. So the different styles, he was like, no, you're going to play outside your box. We're going to play the ball to your feet. And you're going to distribute out the back. You're going to be an extra man for us. Changed my game. Changed my game. But what really did it for me, we talked about the left foot, was that I tweaked my, my uh, quad on my right leg. So my dad goes, well, I'm going to get you one of those things that goes around your waist so you can work on your left leg. I'm like, gee, thanks. <laughs> so I started working on my left leg. So I got to the point where, oh, wow, I can actually punt with my left. So I ever injure my right, I can punt with my left. I'm not really great at it, but it's serviceable. Yeah. I can kind of get the ball where it needs to go, but it's so important to be able to play with, with both feet. But to your point, a lot of kids I find that want to be goalkeepers that shy away from playing with their feet do not watch the highest goalkeepers or do not watch soccer enough to realize that that is a critical part of the game now. Yeah. And I think if they understood it, they would sometimes they would, they would probably work on a little bit more at home, you know, versus being in a pressure situation with the coach. Um, they might be more apt to, you know, try and do it at home. And I'm a big proponent. I try and get them to do what I did, get that skills trainer, and just go home and just bang the ball with the left, bang the ball with the left. If you're worried about me, you know, getting on you and correcting you, go home and do it. So when you come back at it, I want you to say, and, I'm a, and I love this. I told you so, coach. I just, you didn't think I could do it, and I did it. Say, so, oh, so you worked out at home. 
That's right, because then you get that big smile from the kid. They did it themselves. It wasn't right. forced. It wasn't pressed. And it's like, oh, so I see you're taking control of your game now. Now they have some ownership. Yeah. So that's- I think the big disconnect, I think, is with, especially with youth players, like when they watch, so you watch some of the top goalkeepers, whether it's Neuer, De Gea, you know, Allison, Ederson, you know, they think, you know, Oh, well, that's Ederson, you know, he's, that's just how he's made, like, he's just naturally <laughs> able to do that, and so they, like, they, there's a disconnect, like, they don't think that Ederson practices, they don't think that Ederson goes right. into training every day and works on that every single day. Is there a, a bit of natural ability? Sure, but it, Ederson's been doing this since he was 12, 13 years old, right? He's been, he's been working on that technique for years, and so I think that people, or goalkeepers, especially youth goalkeepers, or, the, or at least the ones that I encounter a lot, seem to think that it's not, they don't see the hard work that goes in, goes into it. They don't see the hours and in training, after training, before training that goes into the real great distribution that comes on NBC Sports uh, on, on Saturdays and Sundays, right? Yep. So they don't understand the amount of work that they need to put in because if they, if they put in the work, I'm not going to say they can be Ederson, but they can definitely have confident distribution where they can start picking out players and, and distributing out of their hands and hitting the side volley in the, in the places that they want. It's just, you just have to put the work in, right? It, yeah. It's it's not just going to come naturally. It's not just something that just you'll wake up and be like, oh, well, you know what? I can do that. Um, so <laughs> I'm messy in a goal. <laughs> exactly. It's just, it's just a mentality. Um but I wanna I wanna so I wanna talk post Pfeiffer, but first I wanna talk about how exactly you got into goalkeeping. What what got you to become a goalkeeper? So for me, I won, I hated running. I was terrible at it, hated it. So I was like, all right, I'll go and go. I was decently athletic. I was like, all right, I'll go and go. But I remember I used to watch a lot of like Zach Thornton, um, Shaka Hislop, um, you know, a, a lot of black goalkeepers when I was younger and that was really what motivated me to keep going. Like I started in goal because I didn't like running, but then I kept going because I kept seeing all, all these goalkeepers who looked like me who were playing at a high level and it, it that inspired me to continue going. So so what brought you to be a goalkeeper? Similar. I was I started out playing on the field, um, but I always kind of played goalkeeper. So I was kind of like, it was always me and another kid. So the other kid would always get the nod. So I was just play the field. And then it got to the point where I was never really a, a heavy, chubby kid, but I was building all my counterparts in the field. <laughs> and I used to forget a ball, so I used to have to run a lot. And then the one day the coach said, I'll never get my Columbia coach, Carlos Ortiz, he goes, hey, chubby, get in the goal. And I'm looking like, dude, I'm not really chubby. <laughs> but that's just, you know, back then what they did. So I, I jumped in the goal and, you know, natural athleticism. And I played baseball all growing up. So, you know, tracking the ball, my eyes, all those movements, playing catcher and shortstop and getting in front of the ball and everything just came natural. And then I just fell in love with it. And I was like, oh, this is a pretty cool position. I don't have to run a great deal. You know, one, I'd rather run. Two, I'm probably going to get to play all the time. If I'm better than the other guy, I'm not going to get subbed out. So yeah. I'm going to be on the field. Three, nobody wants to play this position, right? And nobody wants to get hit in the face because the goalkeeper before me, I first started playing club was always like breaking his nose, getting teeth knocked out, because he was just, he was reckless, he was just running, you know, brave and throw his face in there, and then finally I got my call and, you know, start playing, and again, you know, I started watching more soccer at that point in time, and, you know, I started following other goalkeepers, you know, one of my favorites growing up was uh, Lama, he was from, uh, originally from French Guinea or French Guinea, I think, 
And then uh, he moved to France. And he was like one of my favorites with the ponytail, you know, playing in the back, you know, playing goalkeeper. So I started watching that. And then as you get older, you get the, the Rene Huguitas, you know, the Shaka Hislops, um, one of my favorite. And I'll call his nickname David Calamity James. <laughs> he was like, that was my guy growing up. Like, I had his poster in college and everything. And, you know, even though he wasn't great on crosses, and I, and I, love, I love crosses, you know, those are the guys that, you know, inspired me you know, the one to play. And then I can't forget about, you know, growing up in New Jersey, even though she went to UMass, um, you know, you got the girls like Sakia, Saskia Weber that went to Rutgers. Um, then you got like Brianna Scurry, you know, a national yeah, student. Yeah, like, can't forget just, Brianna. She definitely. Yeah, Brianna. Yeah, Brianna yeah, just on, on the women's side alone, you look at them, you're like, wow, you know, they look like me. They're, you know, they're doing what I'm doing and they're doing it at a high level and they're doing it very, very well. And then the biggest guy you brought up, was Zach Thornton. Zach, you know, the all-American lacrosse, all-American soccer goalkeeper. Um, I'm sure he got a lot of questions that I would get. Hey, you play football? Yeah. As our, our body build. So nobody would think I was ever a goalkeeper. They would think I was, you know, a football player. So just to see someone like that that was built, he's not bigger than me, but, you know, who's built similar to I am, you know. Not a typical, you know, you're not – but you're staying or a Neuer build or Ederson build where you're just straight, you know, you got some bulk to you, some size, like Tim Howard has. He's like, I would even call Tim like a tweener because he's got size to him, but he's not like Zach, like Zach. You've met Zach. Zach's a massive man. Um, just seeing goalkeepers that look like me, built like me, played like high, played, you know, aggressive, give your body up, make the save, unorthodox. Um, pure athleticism, where things that you don't work on in training. Like I always go back to Timmy when he played uh, Brazil. And I, I think if you go through that game, there's probably 10 saves that no trainer in the world is going to teach you in a session in one hour how to make. It's just pure backyard, play out my friends. Oh, you bang a ball, I'm going full spread out, legs in the air, the ball hits his leg, and people are like, oh my God, it's the greatest save in the world. And it, you can't teach that. It was literally you know, just keep the ball out of the net. That's yeah, just keep the ball. Yeah, just keep the ball in that. So I look at like, and then later, you know, the athleticism turned turn into the technical ability, and then that's when I really started to kind of compare myself to those goalkeepers that I looked up to and say, hey, wow, you know, I can get on that stage. I can do those things. Just got to stay healthy. <laughs> so let's talk after Pfeiffer. What what what? Uh, where did you go after Pfeiffer? So after Pfeiffer, I was kind of set up like in a workforce through with horse racing to kind of criminal justice major. And I wanted to be a state trooper. And then another segment led for me to kind of take an executive position within racing. Um, back then, there was no money in soccer. So I was kind of looking at, you know, my parents who were, they believed in what I did and supported me. But there were the parents, they weren't going to pay for me to go to a soccer camp. Then, you know, some of my friends or my competitors were going to. If I'm good enough, I'm going to be seen. I'm going to, I'm going to get there. So I had opportunities to go to Bolivia, uh, Mexico, you know, straight out of college, try out. Unfortunately, uh, my mother, again, <laughs> she's one of these parents that, you know, very strict. If you can't make it here, you're not going to make it anywhere else. So I said, okay. You know, she wanted me to do the job thing, so I took the job, good salary, but my heart kept crying out, play soccer. So this time I'm working in uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania for 
Philadelphia Park racing system. And uh, I got an opportunity to play for Delaware Wizards. So that was like my first start. Um, they were, back then, the tier was MLS, A-League, and then I guess you would call USL or UISL mm -hmm. back then. Um, so I started out there playing. Did very well. Came in as, you know, third keeper, worked my way up to the second string. Walking in the door, I felt I was better than the first string keeper. New environment. You know, you have to pay your dues. Your teammates quickly see, you know, who they want behind them. So it became a little bit rocky for me. Um, so I think I lasted with that club probably, I would say a month maybe. Got in two weeks into the season. I got rookie of the week. Second week, I got rookie of the week. Third week, or the fourth week, we come down to play Charlotte. Uh, the Charlotte Eagles, matter of fact. Now everyone's sitting in the hotel. And uh, one of the captains comes up to me. He goes, hey, man, I got some bad news for you. I go, what? He goes, you know, I didn't want to tell you yesterday, but I'm going to tell you now that, you know, staff wanted me to come talk to you. And he goes, you got called up to go up to the A-League. I'm like, oh, great. Like, yes. You know, I'm on a big show. I didn't play against the Eagles. The other keeper had came back after my two weeks. You know, um, got called to play A-League. Turns out it was the day before. And they didn't let me go. And then I got released when we got back <laughs> because I got called up to the A-League. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a goalkeeper that they wanted to have promoted from their team. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. There was another goalkeeper that they wanted to promote from that team. So came back. Um, actually, I didn't get released. We came back. It was another week of games. And then finally I talked to ownership. And then they ended up just releasing me. Then I went to uh, Eastern Shore Sharks, which is another D3 team. And then I went to Maryland Mania after that and played, finished out the season with them. Had a couple looks, Hershey Wildcats. Um, I did take time off. I did get injured again. I've had shattered kneecap, tendonitis in both Achilles, two broken ankles arthritis in both hands. So my body was, by the time I'm playing after college, my body was legit shot. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so I took time off, you know, after the A-League, I went back another year, played, signed back with Delaware, played a half a year, got hurt again. Then I decided, you know what? Back then you're only making three, $400 a game. If you're playing A-League contract was offered, 1500 $2,000 a month, you know, they give you, it's not really a lot to live on um, versus you're working full-time, you're making 50, 60 grand a year. It's a big trade-off for something that you love. Um, but then, so I left soccer for probably two years, did absolutely nothing with it, just worked, 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 still kind of played a little bit in Philadelphia, the huge African community. So I just started, you know, just playing with them a little bit. And then I got the bug back and the coach was, he asked me to kind of play goalkeeper and be like an assistant coach with him. And they were playing like the open cup leagues then. So I kind of got the bug and then I got a phone call. Hey, can you come down to Pocomoke City? You know, playing this pro-am game, I need a goalkeeper. So a friend of mine that had owned Eastern Shore Sharks went down, played a game. Two weeks later, I'm sitting in my office, my cell phone rings. This guy I know from, uh, 
couple years prior, says, hey, some guy saw you play, want to know if you want to come to D.C. and do training. Can you come down tomorrow? Asked my boss. He said, no doubt, because I was training his little girl in soccer, just playing around. Went down to D.C., had a good sessions with them, had like three good sessions with them. They were like, okay, we want to bring you back down. Came back down. Bam. Did the ankle again. <laughs> then I signed with uh, Nova Royals, Northern Virginia Royals. Mm-hmm. And then I stayed on with them just like to the end of the season, just because I felt like, you know, I committed and wanted to see how my ankle was going to, you know, heal, what was going to happen with me. And, you know, it just it never recovered fully. I could still play, but I was never back to what I was. So my career was kind of cut short due to injury. I ended up playing a lot more uh, men's leagues, open leagues, where uh, we played in. We didn't. Rochester Rhinos. I think we played them one. I think we played them one time. We made it pretty far. We beat some big team, Greek team up in New York, and then we were able to plan them and we lost like three two or something, three one or something like that. But then that was like it for me as far as the the high competitive league soccer. Um, like you said, my ankles just couldn't hold up to the to amount of training that you know you would do. You know how it is in the morning. You're doing fitness or speed and agility and you know, in the evenings you're training or doing, you know, small-sided games, and then you got games on the weekends or games during the week, and it can be exhausting on your body. Yeah. So what got you into coaching? Um, the passion for the game. I saw, you know, kids weren't being given opportunities that they should. <clears throat> to this point, my, uh, my son, when he turned three, he especially wanted to play. I joined a we joined a small little like boys and girls club in a little town called Lansdowne, Pennsylvania. And quickly, you know, they talked about my soccer background. You know, they asked me what the coach. So I was just coaching around there for a little bit. And I noticed they had a, a club team, which is minority based. They might've had maybe two kids on the two, three kids on the team that was not, you know, a minority. The lady who actually ran the entire Lansdowne boys and girls club her name is Betty D'Angelo. She was an executive of Miami Fusion and DC United. She started the first girls soccer program in Pennsylvania to kind of, you know, elevate girls, women's, women's soccer. Uh, her and I became very close and um, she basically handed me the keys to the program because I saw these kids weren't being challenged and they wanted, a lot of them came from broken families. Um, maybe they're living with a grandmother, single parent. Um, some were living with friends and relatives. And, you know, soccer was a, another pathway besides basketball or football to get out of the situation that they were in. Um, but they needed a pathway. There was no true pathway. They were playing, you know, a bottom division, beating teams 7 8 nothing every game, which they should be playing, you know, <clears throat> the top three divisions. So I took that over and got into coaching and established that program took them from like eighth division, moved them all the way up to third division. They won that down in the first division. We were competitive in the Delco Select um, League. And then I started three other teams after that. Um, they're basically minority driven. Um, and we would go and we would beat like, you know, I hate to say like the big clubs, like my club, CSA, like we would go and we would beat those clubs like two, three, nothing handedly um, because these kids just had drive, determination, they just needed someone to give them a pathway 
someone to take them and say, hey, I recognize who you are. I know where you want to be. These are the steps that you can take to get what you want in life instead of, hey, just go out and do it, kick the ball and go give it to the coach's son and run. And, <laughs> you know, I try to give them, like I said, just a pathway to have success. A couple of the kids now have left. When I left the club in 2014, they shut it down probably a year later. Um, I was still able to have some influence for some of the kids and get them into some of the bigger clubs. Um, some of those kids now are in Philadelphia Union Academy. Some of the kids, one kid that was in the club, I think he just walked on it like Howard, to play at Howard. Um, but it, it brings great joy to start coaching at such a small level and see those kids, you know, have a pathway to get into college. And a lot of them went to college. Either they're playing soccer or they stopped playing soccer and focus on academics. But bottom line is they're getting their education, which is the first foremost, most important thing, which is why it's called a student athlete, not an athlete student. So they're getting that education. And that's for me, the, you know, I see the post on Facebook or the, hey, coach, how's it going? I see the graduation cap and it just sends chills because you knew you had a part of coaching that kid at seven, eight, nine years old, instilling good things into their brain and giving them the, uh, an opportunity to be successful. It's something that they didn't think they could be successful because everyone around them is doubting and telling them that they can't be successful or they're not going to be good at soccer because you're not playing at a big club. You don't have the shiny new cleats. You don't have the best balls or the best facilities. It doesn't matter. It's always, you know, for me, it was what's inside the person. Right. How do, you, how do you think we bridge that gap, though, between, you know, these lower-income communities where there are so many kids who are interested in soccer, whether it be goalkeeping or just, just being a field player, but, like, they don't have the, the access or the opportunity to play in some of these bigger clubs, you know, soccer is expensive. You know, how do we bridge that gap so that we can mine more talent that, that's there and, and could be developed and, like you said, give them a pathway for greater opportunities and not just about soccer, but giving, getting a kid into college is, is getting them an education, right? Getting them an education, giving them an opportunity to play at a high level and, and hopefully use that opportunity to move even further in life. No, I think it has to start with smaller, smaller clubs. Um, <clears throat> from my experience and kids that I've dealt with in Pennsylvania, um, some of the kids down here is that, some of the bigger clubs mean well when they're trying to offer scholarships for some kids. And it works for some, doesn't work for all, because then you get into transportation, okay? Um, you can offer a kid a scholarship, but can they get there four nights a week for practices? Maybe their family dynamic does not allow that. So I think there should be like your uh, smaller niche clubs that kind of just work towards those groups of kids like uh, we talked about like your one sevens you know that are out there that just cater to the that demographic of a player and, and family obviously first and foremost the family because that's the main thing that's really important um if a family believes in you as an establishment they believe in you as a coach they believe that you have the best interest in their kids development and not just hey I want to put your kid on this team. I'll give you a scholarship because you're going to improve my team and help them win. But we really don't care about getting you to practice or anything like that. I think that's when they'll start changing. Um, like the club, the little niche club I had was what I wish 
a lot more clubs could do down here is kind of give someone of color, a minority, an opportunity to say, hey, some of these kids, you know, can't afford it, can't get here. We need a satellite location that's within these communities that these kids can get to. We need to establish something, you know, some type of transportation where that, you know, if Joe's mom works four nights a week, Joe can get practice four nights a week. Joe does not have to worry about that. That just takes so much pressure off the parent, takes so much pressure off the kid. Um, there needs to be, you know, there's people out there that do that. I was one in Pennsylvania, spending my gas, my money, driving kids to make sure they get there. Um, there needs to be some type of, you know, organization that does that across the board for many different. Because um, that's, for me, that's how you can bridge the gap. They have to, you got to have a little more smaller niche clubs that just cater um, to these kids because my fear and what I've seen in the past is that, and I'll take, for example, in Philadelphia, there's a, I won't name the school, but there's a school, okay? It's a prestigious school. And this school, if they know there's maybe an African kid, because Philadelphia's a huge African population, that plays soccer very, very well, a parent, because they want their kid to play, they, they want their kid's team to be really good, they'll stroke a check for that kid to go to school and get the education. But what happens when that kid starts outshining their kid? That's the major question. And then that's when you start seeing things start, strings start unraveling, right? So people do things with good intention, but then when it, you know, when it creates barriers for their kid, and their kid's going to have those opportunities because, you know, they're, they have the finances, we'll say. They have the means, the opportunities to go and get training. The other kid may not, but college coach comes, they see that kid, see this kid. They're like, oh, I really like this kid. The dad that pays for that kid to go there is probably not going to have, even though they can pay for college, you can have a, bi a, bi a billion dollars, and it means a lot more to say, hey, my kid just got a full ride to UVA versus I just pay for my kid to go to UVA. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So to kind of, I wouldn't say separate it, but there needs to be something in inner city communities that just services that demographic, that population. I think you see it more so on the Latin, in the Latin communities, because not soccer, I mean, you look at it and you say, okay, not stereotypically, but it's a Latin sport. You look at soccer and a lot of Latins play soccer. You know, a lot of African-Americans don't play soccer. Right. So you see more, you see more basketball courts in inner cities than you see little soccer fields. But then when you go to, you know, uh, areas of Charlotte and they have them in Charlotte where there's heavily, you know, Spanish populated areas, the tennis courts and basketball courts are soccer courts. You can actually see one right off 85 is a tennis court is converted to a soccer court. Yeah, you know, that's so exactly you, what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, so you see a lot of that. When I was over in Munich, you know, you, you see a lot of, like, you know, you turn a corner and walking around, and I'm like, oh, there's a basketball court, you know, go shoot some hoops. Oh, I guess I'm playing soccer today because it's, it's a soccer field. And a friend of mine, King Size, doing this in Philadelphia where he's actually taking the forefront of putting these little futsal fields in – low-income areas in Philadelphia to replace 
basketball hoops, just to get more African Americans, you know, to to see the sport and play the sport. Because, I mean, one thing a lot of people don't think it's a cool sport. And back in the day, a lot of fans didn't think it was a cool sport until I explained to them that, like, yeah, you know Allen Iverson. They, you know, everybody knows Allen Iverson. He said he does the crossover move and he can shake and, you know, put people on skates. He's like, yeah. I go, watch this guy do the same thing with the ball. So they're like, oh, my God, are you serious? You can really do that? And then everybody, oh, soccer's kind of cool. And then the jerseys start to get a little bit, you know, flavor. And I really think it can be really huge, you know, in, you know, in the African-American communities once – someone start building things like that. And it can happen in Charlotte. It can happen anywhere. Absolutely. I think I, I agree. Like I when I went over to England, um, I remember just the number of small sided courts that are just around, um, whether it's just a small court somewhere or whether it's just a, a large facility that has 10 of them, you know, and I, that's always been one thing I, I've always wanted was bring that over to the U.S., you know, and, and especially in these lower income communities, African-American communities, like can we put a small football court um, so these kids can just go out and play, right, and introduce them to the game at a younger age so that they can fall in love with it. And then from there, we've got to have a pathway for them to succeed in. Like you said, like it's, it's, it's one thing to have a scholarship at some of these bigger um, youth clubs, whether it's a CSA, whether it's a Charlotte Independence, having a scholarship, it's like you talked about, how am I going to get to training, you know, and, and under, and do we have a coaching staff that understands that this kid's living in a different environment than a majority of the kids that you're working with? How are you going to handle that kid versus handling the rest of the group? I'm not saying you have to single him out and, and, and point out every single day, Oh, you're the, you know, you're the minority kid. You're the, you're the lower right. scholarship kid, but you have to understand that you have to, you have to deal with that kid a little bit differently because that kid has some different things going on. Like that's not to say that these other kids don't have things going on at home, but it's a little bit different when, I'm not sure if I'm going to eat when I get home as opposed to some of these kids who simply go home and, you know, meals on the table and, you know, they great. We're going to watch some TV, have homework, whatever. Like you have to understand. And that goes for every club. Like these kids are different. All kids are different. All families are different. Everyone's going through different things. And there's a, it, 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 it can impact you on the field, right? It can impact you in training. It impacts how a kid acts towards his coach, acts towards his teammates. And so these are things that, like, I've had conversations with, you know, some of the, some of the youth clubs around the area about it as well. Like, how are we going to integrate the larger Charlotte community into your club as opposed to simply just the ones that can afford it, right? Because right. we can't just leave these kids behind because there's talent there. There's so much talent there. And the talent plus opportunity, like you, you can, the sky's the limit. But if you don't have the opportunity, you don't have the, the same resources that everyone else has, like it's, it's, it's extremely tough to succeed. Um, yep. So these are, I mean, these are just, these are little things. And one of the main reasons I wanted to, to get you on the podcast and talk to you a little bit, because, you know, you're, you don't see very many. I, I grew up, I didn't have an African-American coach the entire time I was playing. Um, I didn't, you know, I never had one at the professional level. Um, and so, you know, understanding, you know, some of the things you've been through, some of the things I've been through, some of the, some of the similarities there, and just, you know, thinking like-minded in terms of how do we get more minorities into the sport, more minorities into the position, the goalkeeping position, and then into the coaching realm, into the, you know, GM, president, things like that. Um, because, you know, I want, I want the kids to be able to aspire to, to something greater as well. One of the things that you just said, and also go back to it, it's, it's, it's we want to get the kids in, 
to do these things, but it has to be done in reverse. So, and the reason I said is this. When I was training with these African men in Philadelphia, I noticed something. They all had their sons out there. Mm. And their kids were absolutely ridiculous. I mean, unbelievable players. Everything the men did, the kids were off on the sideline imitating. Right. Oh, what club does your son play for? Oh, he doesn't play club soccer. How old is he? Oh, he's 9, he's 10, he's 13. They don't play club soccer? No. Why not? Ah, we don't, we don't do that. They train with us. Later, I found out, which is why I was able to get all those kids in my club, because it's based on trust. They didn't trust sending their kids and have the coaches and the leadership that was there, that was in place, had their kids' best interest to develop as a player, not just get the ball because you might be faster than everybody else and run up the wing and shoot and score. They want them to develop as players, just not, you know, because you're athletic. Yeah. You know? One of the dads told me, he goes, we trust you. We're going to give your kids. You put in your time here. We know who you are. We believe that you have our kids' best interest at hand. We want our kids to play for you and work with you. Great. But you need to have that leadership there first, right? And then the parents will trust because when we send our kids to school, like I won't just send my kid to any school. I need to trust the leadership. Yeah. All right? And you can tell me this is the best school in Charlotte, but unless I sit and talk with leadership, unless our values are in line for the best of my kid, it's hard for me to trust sending them to that, that institution. Um, so I think with a lot of minority players, and I see that also with a lot of Spanish players, they won't come to coaching staff or, or, or bigger clubs where there's no one that looks like them. Yeah. That's charge because they don't feel they're going to get a fair shake. Because so-and-so says, oh, well, I can just write a check. You might be struggling or you might be late on a payment. The mom and dad are both working. It's a business. It's a, everything's a business, the bottom line. Right. Clubs is a business. They got to get their money. They want to do what's right, but it's a business first and foremost, like everything else. Um, as I said, if there were more people in those positions of DOCs, you know, of executive directors, you know, goalkeeping coaches, that kids can say, yeah, you know, I think this guy will have my best interest. You know, he looks like me. I can relate to him. I can talk. He might understand what I'm going through. He might be able to – I've had both times a kid have pulled me off the side and say, hey, this, that, and the other. I'm having some issues at home. Blah, blah, blah. I might miss tomorrow's practice. No problem. Do what you have to do. Take care of what you have to do at home. Where another coach might say, Al, you're going to sit out the next game because they don't understand. Or right. don't want to – or is there another way you can get there? What if I go pick you up? That's To me, that's intrusive. That kid's telling you, hey, there's some things going on. I need to be home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it starts with the leadership of top red. And you gotta, we got to get more minority leadership in soccer, more directors. Um, the opportunities have to be presented. Whether and My big thing is whether you have bad – I mean, badges are great. But whether you have badges or not, a lot of times it's good to give people opportunities because it opens doors for others. Exactly. And and then the end result, you know, in the big picture and the big world is you give someone an opportunity, you might get in a pool of players that you never thought you could get because now all of a sudden that person was the, the tie to get those players in, you know, and that could boost your club and make it better. You can leave the forefront 
of adding that more diversity in the soccer because you know, I know about you growing up, uh, you know, as on the podcast, but I'm going to say this. <laughs> My mom used to say this all the time, you know, when, you know, when we take a soccer picture, it's like, oh, you know, I'm the speck of dirt in a bowl of rice. Exactly. You know, because, I, mean, I have lots of pictures <laughs> like that. <laughs> because that, I mean, that, that, you know, and it's, you know, in college, you know, you, you, I look back at pictures of college and it's like maybe me and like one other guy, you know, or maybe like one or two Latin players on there, you know, and then sometimes, you know, it's what you identify with. So, and then, but then again, like, I, I don't think I've ever had. That Spanish coach, I don't think I've ever had a Latin American, uh, African American coach. I've been trained on training sessions, but never had like a full time club, high school, professional, college. Not until I was playing in the African League did I really see that. And that was even unique, where you're like, okay, now I go from the only African American on the soccer field to the only American on the soccer field. <laughs> no one cares if you're the American. They're just like, oh, there's the American. You know, and they just call you the American. You're like, yeah, I'm here. I'm going to shut you out today. <laughs> well, Aaron, I appreciate you coming on the podcast today. I think uh, it was great to learn more about you, hear your story, um, and share some of your insight because I know you, you have a lot of experience um, at every level. Uh, and so I just, uh, I appreciate the time. I know the listeners are, are really going to learn a lot from what you had to say. Um, so thank you. Thank you for coming on. Yeah. And, and before you go, I want you to, can you share your social medias so that people, if they want to reach out to you, ask you questions or get to know you? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to tell you two, two things real quick before, before we go. Um, one, as you're going, as you're a coach of color and you're going through this journey or a player and you want to get into coaching, um, you're going to hit a lot of obstacles. You're going to hit a lot of obstacles with, with badges, with, with teams, with, with, with people just trying to, to hear your story and hear what you want to do because everybody has an idea of what they want to do. My recommendation is stay true to who you are, believe in yourself, and if you do the right things, doors will always open. I am living proof of that. I moved out in 2014. Struggled up in Pennsylvania with, with these clubs, come down here, kind of the same thing, a lot of, you know, took a lot of tension, kept my nose clean, did the right thing. And one day I'm sitting, I'm a school teacher, I'm sitting in my, in my classroom, I get a phone call. It was the last phone call I ever expected in the world. A Division One opportunity to coach, an opportunity to coach Division One soccer from someone that you know very well, Mr. Phil Poole, mm-hmm. that I don't work with that because I feel I kept my nose clean, did the right thing and continuously grinded and had the only interest, you know, of the kids in development. People will always be, my mother used to say, people are always watching you. So the way you carry yourself, people are always going to remember that. Right. So when he was asked, one of my, my name came up as probably other people's names came up, but one of my names came up and I felt honored because I felt, you know, I lived, I did the right things and people recognized that and, if you do those things, trust me, good things will happen for you. It may not happen in the time frame that you want it, exactly. but it will happen for you over time. You just got to, you know, you got to buy the past, stay on the past, stay on the past, and it eventually will work out one way or the other. But you can reach me on social media. Uh, Aaron Stanton uh, is my IG, um, 704GKA, uh, Fire Sports 
um, is my Facebook, also Aaron Stanton on Facebook.com, and I'm on Twitter at 704GKA, uh, Fire Sports. Fire Sports, sorry. Perfect, perfect. Well, again, I appreciate you coming on. Um, we'll definitely have to get you back on here and talk some more. We could talk all day about, about yeah, goalkeeping and, and different things. So we'll definitely we'll definitely get you either back on here on the podcast or the, the training series that we started. We'll definitely, uh, we'll definitely have more conversation. Awesome. Appreciate it. All right. Well, have a good day. And, and again, I appreciate you. Awesome. Thank you. And that's another episode of the Last Line Soccer Podcast in the books. Once again, we want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. We really appreciate your support. As always, if you have any feedback for us, positive or negative, head over to the Prime Focus goalkeeping page to drop us a message. We also want to thank another one of our sponsors, Roughneck Scars, for all the work they do. If you're in need of great custom scars for teams or supporters groups, head over to roughneckscars.com to see what they have to offer. As always, guys, take care and stay tuned for the next Last Line Soccer Podcast episode. We'll <laughs>